Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFERL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest this week is Andras Totsifra, a political analyst, non-resident fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, uh, and author of the analytical blog No Yardstick. Thanks very much for joining me today, Andras. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, well, uh, 2022 has just begun, and in Russia, it won't really get started until January 10th after the New Year's and Orthodox Christmas holidays. So I think there's still some time to talk about what uh, this year may bring, both in terms of events inside Russia and outside its ties with other countries. Um, on both of those, I'm going to refer to a very informative thread uh, that you wrote, Andash, a few days before the new year. It was mostly about domestic Russian issues, uh, so let's start with that. In fact, you wrote about a number of things to watch uh, from kind of growing authoritarianism and the clampdown on dissent uh, to the economy, climate change, and the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, which you said would be, quote, a defining issue in Russia in 2022, and, quote, will remain the single biggest challenge to Russian techno-authoritarianism for the foreseeable future. So, Andras, I just want to invite you to kind of talk about what you see as being uh, really important uh, to watch in Russia this year. Obviously, it was a big year uh, last year with with uh, a lot going on. What, what will you be watching closely uh, in 2022? So first of all, I would probably not like to make any um, strong predictions because uh, that's always a slippery slope and uh, many times I've been proven wrong. <laughs> um, but here are the couple of things, and, there are, and as you mentioned, there are many things indeed that uh, we're so defining in 2021 and uh, will be defining in 2022, I think. And since you mentioned the COVID response, let's start with that, I think. Um, so... I think it's going to be a continuously defining um, challenge to this emerging techno-authoritarianism that we see in Russia, because it's not a problem that um, the system can easily control or wish away or sweep under the rug. Uh, as of the end of 2021, um, only about 45% of uh, Russians have received uh, two vaccine doses, which uh, lags behind uh, most of developed countries. And um, um, the booster revaccination rate is uh, also lagging behind most of the world. Um, the developed um, European countries, I mean, and the US. Mm -hmm. So the COVID response is going to, uh, the, the COVID is going to be a problem. It's going to be a problem mostly because uh, some of the some of the policy tools that the Russian government can deploy to deal with this problem are unpalatable from a political point of view. We have seen the uh, the uh, tension between uh, maintaining Putin's uh, approval ratings or uh, trust ratings in uh, 2021 and enforcing. Uh, compulsory vaccination uh, or enforcing lockdowns, mm -hmm. um, how this was outsourced to um, regional governors. Um, this hasn't changed. 
the Russian uh, parliament has adopted uh, a bill on QR codes, QR vaccine passports, which may still emerge as one of the defining uh, opposition talking themes, one of the defining uh, issues that will turn Russians against the government for numerous reasons. First of all, there is uh, vaccine hesitancy, there is vaccine skepticism in Russia. Uh, it would be difficult to deny that. But also, it, among, the, among the arguments against the law, um, the fact that um, this might just be another tool in the hands of the government to, uh, to, to control where people can go to gather information on them and then use that information in intransparent ways. So this has also been raised. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's difficult to argue after the past year that this is not going to be so even if, and that's a big if, the government has the best intentions in mind. So um, this is this is one of the reasons why COVID is going to become an important issue. But the other reason is, of course, the uh, economic response, uh, the sort of the uh, fairly muted economic recovery that Russia has experienced in 2021, uh, and especially when it comes to um, the recovery of uh, uh, Russians' incomes, mm -hmm. uh, the reluctance to provide widespread uh, income um, support to to Russians, which uh, also uh, dragged uh, or became a drag on uh, the recovery of uh, domestic demand. These are all going to uh, continue into 2022. And I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a uh, small-ish, perhaps somewhat bigger than what we have, saw, what we have seen before, uh, economic stimulus uh, aimed at Russian, um, Russian citizens with the aim of both lifting this domestic demand and also to keep um, sort of domestic um, dissatisfaction with the government at bay. And I guess that's so kind that's, of, sorry to interrupt, I guess that's kind of important, um, you know, going into getting closer to 2024. It is yes. It is, it is indeed it is indeed important. Um, the system will the system is going to look for a, a legitimacy boost of some sort, mm -hmm. and uh, um, and, and I don't think that as we get closer to that date, uh, a protracted drop in the legitimacy of the system can um, can, can be tolerated or will be tolerated. Um, the, the Russian state has the resources. Uh, the National Welfare Fund is um, no bigger than it has ever been since, 20, since 2014. Um, it, it has risen to about $630 billion. Uh, it's just that the Russian government has been very reluctant to uh, use these funds to um, uh, to to. Uh, help Russians' incomes. Um, they, it, 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 they are, um, the government is still sort of sitting on these funds. Uh, and even though in the next, uh, in the 2022 uh, uh, budget, copious amounts of funds will be spent or are earmarked, whether 
uh, let's say that, to be spent on develop various development projects in the framework of the national projects, for instance. Uh, social spending, healthcare spending uh, will not uh, increase uh, compared to 2021. Spending on, um, on, on domestic security, spending on the military will, mm-hmm. which uh, I think gives a, uh, an indication of where the priorities lie. So this was this this would be one thing to watch one issue to watch in 2022. Another issue that also um, had a turning point in 2021 um, was the development of digital authoritarianism, um, which uh, a, a kind of model of governance that uh, depends on an increased uh, collection, synthesis, and control of data uh, of any sort. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, mass surveillance, which uh, various forms of which were uh, experimentally tried out in Moscow, um, which were facilitated by the pandemic and by the lockdown measures that the pandemic uh, demanded. Um, and uh, this. Uh, uh, and, and this, uh, I, I see this model as a uh, as an attempt to move beyond the um, the uh, partially popular, partially authoritarian, um, but um, product-driven or uh, or, or results-driven legitimacy that uh, characterized the first decades of Putin's rule, the first two decades of Putin's rule, mostly the first, and to a certain extent the second. Mm-hmm. Um, towards a model of legitimacy that um, principally relies on who has access to data and who is able to uh, implement policies. This is where the system has been moving towards since, uh, the, since the early days of 2020, but especially since mid-2020 and especially in 2021. Uh, whether or not uh, the Russian government is able to uh, extend um, its control over uncharted territories in the um, digital realm uh, to collect more data to um, block uh, unwanted data and unwanted content more successfully, as we have seen uh, in 2021 uh, several times. that will decide where uh, this, um, whether uh, this uh, digital authoritarianism reaches its sort of next or mature stage. Um, this is closely intertwined, in my view, with a third issue to be watched in 2022, which is a public administration, uh, the public administration reform that started in 2021 um, based on the uh, constitutional reform of 2020 and is still ongoing because even though the first step of the reform uh, which essentially redrew uh, the way that Russian uh, regions um, are overseen and uh, politics in Russian regions is uh, uh, controlled uh, by the center even though this uh, part this first part was adopted the second part which concerns municipalities uh, was uh, was presented to the, the, the bill on this was presented to Duma only in December. Okay. So this will lead to further centralization, um, further control over um, 
the whole vertical of power uh, by the presidential administration and to some extent by the government. Uh, basically, the Kremlin is seeking a uh, veto on over the um, uh, over the will of voters um, in every possible level, and um, is uh, and especially where, especially in the, especially in the cities and especially in the regions where. Um, Politics in recent years have become significantly more pluralistic in spite of the crackdown on various forms of dissent in the past couple of years. And this leads to the, the fourth and perhaps last issue that I wanted to mention, mm-hmm. which is uh, the possible emergence of a new opposition, a new type of opposition. So we have seen a complete, almost complete eradication of uh, Navalny's organizations in 2021. We have seen a crackdown on even the the, the, the Kremlin's own opposition mm-hmm. in uh, the form of uh, recent uh, arrest of uh, Valery Rashkin right. uh, from the Communist Party. Um, and uh, various other actions taken against the communists after the um, 2021 uh, Duma election. But we have also seen um, we have also seen new figures emerging, chiefly in the regions. Um, some of uh, in regions where. Um, where elections are relatively, by Russian standards, more honest and cleaner than in others, mm-hmm. for instance, in the Komi Republic. Um, we have seen uh, people elected um, either as associates of Navalny or aided by uh, his smart voting initiative in the past two or three years in cities doing work and starting to collect information take initiatives in city councils, and some of them, unfortunately, have recently been arrested. But um, there are others who um, who may, in the, in the coming years, either in 2022 or beyond, uh, use this popular legitimacy to take actual uh, steps locally to either uncover a corruption affair or push for more equitable policies. Um, and uh, start changes locally. Uh, the Kremlin will obviously try to quash these uh, local uh, opposition movements, but um, we have seen that we, like, one of the one of the takeaways of the past uh, years of increasingly um, increasingly strong crackdown on dissent that even with the political will that the Kremlin has and the toolbox that it has and uh, the control that sometimes seems all-encompassing, there are always, uh, there are always initiatives, uh, civil or opposition initiatives, that are able to strike through uh, this sort of wall of uh, repression. Uh, in 2022, new topics can may join 
the this list of grievances that increasingly binds people who are dissatisfied with the government together, um, including uh, the aforementioned opposition to uh, vaccine passports, um, which uh, some local opposition uh, parties personalities have already been trying to uh, use to their advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no telling whether this will erupt, this will, uh, this tension will erupt in 2022 or later or at all, but it is certainly there. It, it hasn't gone away. The um, Russians may be less eager in 2022 to uh, take to the streets simply because they take a rational decision uh, after what they have seen the government do in 2021. Right. But um, the dissatisfaction uh, has not gone away. It's going to be there. It will find new forms. So one of the things to watch in 2022 is what new forms this uh, dissatisfaction, these opposition activities will find. All right. Well, that's uh, fascinating and, and, I, and I guess uh, grim. I mean, if I had to summarize, maybe it sounds like kind of a three-pronged or maybe more effort by the state to, you know, to, to kind of crack down further and control things further. You mentioned, you know, further thwarting uh, the uh, will of the people in terms of elections, um, uh, you know, on every level. Uh, but also it sounds like this will be uh, controlling all of this um, or increasing control will be a uh, challenge uh, for the Kremlin. All right, I think um, we don't have a lot of time left, but let's uh, talk a little bit about foreign policy. Uh, 2021 ended with concerns about a possible Russian invasion of Ukraine, as those concerns are still there, uh, with Moscow using its troop buildup uh, as one of the levers of pressure on the West to heed its demands for what the Kremlin calls security guarantees. This is chiefly a binding pledge that NATO would not take in any new members uh, near Russia and restrictions on military deployments and activity in the region as well, including rolling back existing military uh, deployments in Eastern Europe. Now, these Russian proposals or demands will uh, be at least one subject of the discussion at U.S.-Russia talks set for January 9th and 10th, and in talks involving NATO and the OSCE that are expected later next week. In the same thread, um, Andras, late last month, you wrote that several of Russia's proposals or demands are, quote, ludicrous non-starters, because, and to me this wording really captures it, they would uh, roll back many of the security guarantees that Central and Eastern European democracies sought against a then unstable and now autocratic Russia. Um, you know, we're talking about going back to the, the 90s. Um, now, Western officials have said some of have said, in fact, that some of the demands are unacceptable. Uh, but Russian officials, including Putin, um, keep suggesting that the no NATO expansion demand, for example, uh, is crucial. Now, uh, it would be probably be unfair um, to ask you to <laughs> how this problem should be solved, um, but I'd be interested in your thoughts um, about how these talks might go, and again, what you'll be watching, uh, you know, or what you'll be watching for as this situation plays out in the next several weeks or months or or more. So um, I, I think all of us Russia watchers are a bit out of our depth here uh, <laughs> when we are asked to predict how the talks are going to go. Uh, the I think one of the one of the main risks of the situation and one of the sort of qualities of the situation that makes this um, 
makes makes everyone so nervous is that indeed it seems that um, everything is all options are now on the table and can, and should be considered uh, at least at least somewhat plausible um, even military escalation mm-hmm. now um, it is you know it is important to it is important to note i think that the overwhelming majority of russians uh according to the latest surveys by levada uh recognize ukraine as an independent country mm-hmm. uh if you look at it more more in november 2021 more people supported visas between russia and ukraine than did the unification of the two countries uh, and yes, the, the the people who support unification, um, ha, the, their number has grown somewhat since uh, the annexation of Crimea in 2014, and that is definitely at least partially due to the propaganda in Russian television and Russian media as we see. But but um, it, there was also a significant growth in the fear of war. Um, in this period, and so basically, I don't sign up to takes which say that uh, which compare uh, the sort of essentially bloodless annexation of a territory, uh, Crimea, that a lot of Russians considered Russian territory, to a to warfare, open warfare that uh, against Ukraine, which will probably come with uh, enormous costs. Uh, to Russia, both in terms of lives uh, and uh, uh, all kinds of economic sanctions, ranging from, well, I don't need to list all the options that have been laid on the table, from um, the, uh, the suspension of Russia from SWIFT to uh, sanctions on Russian banks, Russian business, and so on. Uh, that this being said, the risk of invasion, the risk of renewed invasion, I should say, is definitely real, especially if you consider that it will it might be accompanied by a cyber element, mm-hmm. which is much harder to deter, but can be just as uh, uh, destructive if or disruptive, uh, sorry, if a, than, a, um, uh, than, a, than a military strike sort of a, a full-on invasion. Right. Um, so in my view, um, the talks that will start in in um, January will take place in a very tense uh, in a very tense atmosphere, where um, both sides will try to figure out just how far the other side is willing to go. And I think, from the point of view of NATO and the EU and the US. Uh, a success. First of all, I do think that it is uh, as long as there is there are things to talk about. Uh, talks are always uh, preferable to uh, cutting off talks. Um, and uh, even though most uh, parts of um, the proposed security guarantees are indeed non-starters and should be uh, clearly dismissed as non-starters, mm-hmm. uh, there are things that that, that the sites can. Talk, could talk about from missile um, defense to uh, military drills to cybersecurity and so on. And also they should consider that if the talks break down, then uh, that might have consequences on other talks that have been going on 
and uh, which is why part of why I mentioned cybersecurity. So uh, they should consider these in the in a larger context, and I'm sure they will. I'm sure that they uh, that the EU and NATO will lay their own demands on the table, which we that is a list we but that we haven't seen. But of course, we could all imagine what would be on that list. So this is this is one thing. Uh, then, as you as you uh, as you brought up, and as uh, I also wrote in this uh, uh, Twitter thread that you mentioned, uh, red lines uh, red lines will probably be drawn, and it would be a good idea from if you ask me uh, for them to be drawn. Um, deterrence can take many forms. Uh, from economic sanctions to uh, uh, to, to uh, military aid to Ukraine, but that's up to uh, the countries to figure out, uh, NATO member states to figure out. An important um, uh, an important uh, question is how involved uh, Eastern Europe, especially Ukraine, the Ukrainian government, will be in the talks that will uh, or that may uh, decide uh, whether. Uh, or how far NATO and the EU is are willing to go in Ukraine? Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's a good sign that uh, President Biden uh, talked to President Zelensky, but um, this um, this resolve to involve Ukraine in these negotiations uh, will uh, have to be maintained throughout. And um, one thing, one important thing that I think I mentioned or might, may have mentioned, is the understanding that um, the core problem will not be solved. Like The core problem will definitely not be solved uh, as long as Russia uh, is an authoritarian country bordering democracies that uh, it regards as a security threat. The, the, this, this, of course, means... Uh, an in, that 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 NATO and the EU have an interest in making Russia more democratic, in making Russian citizens more um, able to access their basic democratic rights, and also propping up our own democracies and considering what uh, weaknesses there are that um, such foreign policy adventurism that uh, Putin and the, uh, the Russian government are involved in right now uh, are uh, trying, to, uh, trying to, to, to use against the EU, uh, to, to use against NATO countries. Um, these security issues are like, uh, intertwined with questions such as, can the EU um, offer a path to uh, your, uh, the security, the economic, uh, the lifestyle security, that uh, uh, is associated with Euro-Atlantic structures. Uh, the 20, 2014 revolution in Ukraine was about uh, closeness to the EU and not NATO accession. Right. Um, and yes, we are talking about Ukraine in the context of NATO accession because, uh, because presently it is obvious that even though there's also no uh, offer for Ukraine to join NATO, but... Uh, the EU has not um, has not been able to offer uh, the countries on its periphery a um, credible path to either membership or closer 
um, or closer uh, ties. And then, of course, there are also, we have also the, um, the weak chains, the weak links in our democracies, the Orbans, the Schroeders, uh, the Trumps, who, uh, who, who, who are close, uh, who, who are there in the closeness of power or in some countries in power. And um, now that these Russian demands on the table, they might, re- they might seem ridiculous and they might seem like non-starters to a resolved democratic government. But if that resolve falters in a year or two, why wouldn't a still authoritarian Russia not bring up uh, these demands again? Yeah, and I guess that's one reason that, that Russia's doing this now is kind of get it on the table uh, and um, and see what happens. Um, you mentioned, uh, you know, the idea, and it looks like from what you're saying, these tensions that are kind of underlying the, the, the more immediate um tensions and fears are, are going to be around for a long time. Um, but we will see. And and one thing I'd say, I guess, uh, you mentioned that the Western countries, NATO and the U.S., may make their own demands or proposals. And, and in a way, that may even things out a bit. Um, so we'll see what happens in the, in the talks. Uh, obviously, Russia is pressing, saying it wants responses quickly, but other some people say, you know, Russia likes to talk for a long time. Um, so we will see, uh, you know, as early as next week, how things are at least going at the, at the start of these negotiations. All right, we're, we're running out of time. We'll have to wrap it up, Andras. Thanks very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. All right. And uh, Happy New Year to all. Thanks. Happy New Year to you, too. Uh, Great to have you on the podcast. Uh, Listeners, thanks for listening, and please keep an eye out on Friday for my Week in Russia newsletter. Mm